0: Hello, and welcome to the Beyond Organic Wine podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. We've reached the end of the chemical era of viticulture, and all agriculture, really. It's over, and it failed. For the last century, we thought we were winning the game for control of nature. But actually, we've just been very cleverly cheating. To get one up on nature, we figured out how to burn sunlight at a much faster rate than nature can use it. The sunlight shining on an acre of land and stored over hundreds of years of photosynthesis and carbon sequestration on that land we're using to drive ourselves to work this morning. We're using another hundred years of sunlight on an acre of primordial forest to run the factory where we create a fungicide needed for our vines to survive, and hundreds of more sunlight hours to ship that fungicide out from the factory to our vineyard and apply it with a tractor and then manufacture new glass bottles for our wine and ship them to all the folks around the world who, by the fate of history, can afford to burn irreplaceable hours of ancient sunlight to have their favorite beverage. Nature can't do that. Nature only has that one hour of sunlight on that one acre of land this morning to work with. We haven't been playing fair. We've built an incredibly privileged life, entire national and international infrastructures and cultures, by ignoring the rules of nature. We're finally learning, however, that you can only temporarily cheat nature. You can't beat her. The disaster that looms over our world now is that we've forgotten how to design the systems necessary for our survival in real sunlight hours. We only know how to cheat. And worse, we don't wanna stop cheating because we know it means that we will have to change the way we act and live our lives at every level. So that's the problem. The good news is that we know the solutions. The new era of viticulture is ecological viticulture based on biology, not chemistry. What this means practically is that we begin to ask what kind of wine is possible when we eliminate every outside input from our farm. How can we produce a wine with zero fossil fuels and all of the products and advantages of burning them? Answering that single question will revolutionize wine. The main way that we can grow wine without relying on fossil fuel-produced substances is by growing fruit that thrives naturally in our area because of its own genetic resilience. My guest for this episode is Zach Brown of Alderly Vineyards on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. And he provides a great example of one way we might begin to transition to this kind of wine. Zach has a unique side-by-side comparison between the quote-unquote traditional fossil-fueled form of viticulture and a much more resilient form of viticulture. When you hear the data, insights, and potentials possible, I hope that you're as shocked as I am that more people aren't making this transition. Enjoy. Hey, Zach, welcome. Thanks for doing this. Oh, it's great to be here. Could you tell where you are?
1: Yeah, I'm sitting here. I'm actually sitting in my office looking out across the vineyard, but uh, I'm in the Cowichan Valley, which is on Vancouver Island. There are three, more more or less three wine growing regions on the island. So we've got Uh, The Saanich Peninsula, which is to the south of us, and if you're familiar with Vancouver Island, it's slightly east of Victoria. And then we have the Cowichan Valley, which is sort of south-central Vancouver Island. And then uh, a little bit further up, about an hour and a half or so north of us, um, we have the Comox Valley. And then uh, just off, off the coast, between here and the mainland, we've got what we call the Gulf Islands, and um, we have like uh, saturna and salt spring and pender island or some of the islands there also have uh, vineyards and wineries on them as well Um, works one of the sort of lesser known wine regions of british columbia everybody who knows of british columbia wines tends to think of the okanagan which is it's about four hours uh, east of vancouver um, and it's a di- totally different, uh, wine growing environment there in the Okanagan and Similkameen valleys that we have here, uh, on the coast, on the wet coast.
0: Right. I mean, I, I mean, that's, I mean, as, as wet as Vancouver Island is, you're, there's a little bit of a rain shadow where you are, right. That oh, makes uh, it possible yeah. to have what, to be doing what you're doing, right.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's uh, it's yeah. uh, front having, being in the rain shadow, um, is what makes the Cowichan Valley Possible. So the Cowichan Valley is where I am, and it's it's uh, probably it's the first sort of what we call a sub GI, which you would call an AVA kind of area on Vancouver Island that's sort of recognized as an established growing area. And uh, if I look out my window here to the west, I see Mount Provo, which uh, basically blocks all of the worst of the Pacific influence from us. So we're sort of tucked in behind it. Um, to the s- uh, south of me, uh, blocking me off from the Salish Sea, uh, we have Mount uh, Zuhalem, which is named after an uh, indigenous chief of 100 or so years ago. And to the north, I've got uh, Mount Martin. So I'm re- really sort of in this little bowl here in the North Cowichan. South Cowichan is a little more, more exposed, slightly cooler, but still well within an area you can grow some beautiful Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays and some of the other yeah, uh, yeah. interesting varietals that we're going to talk about.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I mean, without those mountains, you, I mean, it's it's a rainforest there, right? Essentially on the other side of those mountains, correct?
1: Oh, absolutely. So you, if west of us uh, on the other side of those mountains is uh, an area people know as like a Stefino and a uh, Uculet, which are sort of resort area. Um, but people go out there to see the wet and wild coast, you know, the big rainforest and and uh, the absolute amazing storms crashing on the beaches out there on the West Coast. But uh, we're tucked in, uh, Cowichan uh, is, a, is a traditional indigenous word and it actually means warm land. And yeah. so we have the warmest sort of, you know, microclimate here on the West Coast. It's like it's much warmer here in the Cowichan than you would see you know, down in Puget Sound sort of area, you know, on, on that side of the Cascades kind of thing. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's quite warm and, and uh, climate change is definitely having an effect. So we're seeing it get uh, warmer and drier. So we're getting, I belong to the Wine Islands Growers Association. I'm actually on the board. And uh, so we've got uh, a climatologist in our group who uh, has been looking at the changes in, in the couch in over the last 30 years. So we were planted in the early '90s, and the, the region really got started in the late '80s, early '90s. And it was definitely cooler and wetter um, than. And so if we look yeah. at, at the rainfall, what's kind of happened over the last three decades is we kind of get the same annual rainfall as we always did. But what's happening is it's falling more intensely between, you know end of October which is significant for a grower. We can talk about that right through till say May kind of thing. You're getting 12 months worth of rain during that period. Whereas 30 years ago when the region was started, you would, you know, in, in the, in the peak growing season, so your June, July, August kind of thing, you get, you get a a bit of rain every 10 days or so. Right. And uh, so nobody had irrigation, Um, but that's definitely changing. This summer we had like basically four months of drought, and if you had wow. irrigation, it was an amazing summer. If you uh, if you didn't, it was a bit of a nail biter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. Well, I mean, speaking of nail biters and rains coming at the end of October, we're right here on you know October thirtieth, recording this, and it's kind of been a late year down here. Is that true for you up there?
1: Um, no, actually, we had our earliest harvest uh like we've been here seven this is our seventh year here but my predecessor kept records going back to when this place was planted and we had our earliest harvest since about 2009 wow so um which is funny because last year talking about climate change we had our latest harvest ever we were still picking pinot noir on halloween um (laughs) which is which is um a bit tricky here because what tends to happen here on the island is is uh, in that later part of October the rain fairy turns on the switch and it, you know <laughs> it rains until March April kind of thing <laughs> so it just just starts right and so one of the things we're trying to do for ripeness is is like you know when you're when you're coming you know into harvest we're playing chicken with the rain so I'll look over at Mount Provo and, and you know and I'm watching the, 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 rain, the weather radar reports like only a farmer can. And, <laughs> and, and you know, we're kind of like, okay, no, there's it's okay, we've got to pick today. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> right. um, if we don't, you know, Pinot Noir doesn't like the rain. Um, right. Which uh, is one of the reasons, as a little bit of a segue, one of the reasons <laughs> that we grow some hybrids here. Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah. Let's talk about your, your, your vineyard. I mean, you buy some grapes too, but you have a a pretty sizable home vineyard there. Can you talk about like the size of that layout of that? Yeah. So
1: um, we typically do uh, about 2,000, 2,200 cases off our home vineyard. Um, And that was sort of the size that Alderley has been since it was founded until last year. We, there's another vineyard about, 600 meters away here that we're partnered on that we've started to fruit off. But uh, the traditional home vineyard is about eight acres. And uh, we have, you know, sort of a, a, quite an array of varieties here. I mean, part of it is this is one of the oldest vineyards on Vancouver Island. So it was, you know, kind of experimental. So my predecessor, when he started here, started planting, originally planted 35 different varietals um a little bit of everything just to see what would work what what didn't and he was pretty brutal if it, if it if it got you know it was too prone to mold or it didn't ripen or he just thought the wine wasn't up to it he'd rip stuff out and plant again and you know how long it takes to go from planting a vine to actually making first wine off it um so he was pretty ruthless so what we've ended up yeah. with is basically what worked and so a lot of the stuff here has become the model for, you know, what other vineyards have planted in, in the later years. So we've got currently, uh, we're growing on the white side. We have a grape called Bacchus, which is uh, it's closely related to Riesling. It's basically Riesling Sylvander cross with Müller-Turgau. Müller-Turgau itself is a Riesling and Madeleine-Angevin cross. So Bacchus is, it's an early ripening white grape, crops at about six tons an acre makes a lovely aromatic wine. A little bit of trivia, it's the number one planted grape in England. Then we have uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, we're one of only uh, three growers and two producers of Sauvignon Blanc wine here in the Um It does very well. We've won a few gold and double gold medals for our Sauvignon Blanc at the Canadian Wine Championships. We have Pinot Gris, which is a, a perennial favorite. And uh, we do um, aromato-style skin contact for 24-hour Pinot Gris. Uh, On the red side, which is where we get more into the hybrids, we have Mm. um, Maréchal Foch, which is sort of a first generation old school hybrid that came out of the French looking for a solution to phylloxera 100 years ago. And Mm -hmm. we have uh, Cabernet Foch, which is a crossing of Cabernet Sauvignon um, and Maréchal Foch. And then we have Cabernet Lieb which is a Cabernet Sauvignon cross with resistance partners um, crossing. And both of those two uh, red grapes were developed in Switzerland by a man named Valentin Blattner. Um, And he is part of the Piwi movement, PIWI in Europe, mostly focused in Germany, but Swiss are involved as well, where they're trying to develop hybrid grapes that you can grow in traditional vinifera locations um avas i guess and without uh having to rely on heavy um, fungicides right so right and that's the whole thing behind the peewee movement is like low spray or no spray varieties and these two varieties that we grow um i spray them once a year uh, just to keep them ominous as my predecessor used to say but um you could you could (laughs) You know, and I'm, I'm growing them right next to Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris. So part of that spray is to protect the neighbors as much as uh, the vines themselves. But, uh, you know, and, and how these uh, grapes uh, were developed was the indigenous North American uh, genes in the mix convey uh, the resistance to fungus in them and also some earlier ripening characteristics. And right. if you look at the bunches, it's not, and what the Cabernet Sauvignon in these two, Butner's probably done over a hundred different hybrids, but the, for a good portion of his early work was using a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon. And the reason that he chose Cabernet Sauvignon as, you know, the vinifera parent was Cab Sauv has thick skins and small berries. Right. And what the, uh, um, some of the the north american genetics brings to it is open loose clusters right um earlier ripening and resistance to powdery mildew and and, uh, downy mildew and uh, botrytis etc so it's it's not it's it's like the genetics of the grape that are resistance and the structure of the clusters being like really open and you know not like if you look at a sauvignon blanc cluster you know they're so tight and closed like you you couldn't get a piece of paper between the berries whereas um, right, and these these other ones they're, you know, very open.
0: Yeah, if you're growing Pinot Noir. You, <laughs> you mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I do like grow Pinot Noir. One berry, pe- one giant yeah. berry. <laughs> yeah, it's like a compound berry. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, and this is uh, to, and if I remember correctly, I think it's about forty percent planted of that eight acres is the hybrids, and the other sixty percent is is the vinifera. that's, that's correct. correct, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. And so because of that, you've done some really interesting side by side comparison. And it's funny, we, we <laughs> when you first started saying I, uh, you know, um I, I spray them once to keep them honest, I was like, Who is this guy? <laughs> like, what is he talking about? I was like, I was getting annoyed um with that comment and then I realized, you know, like there was a whole thing behind it and realize yeah. what you're doing. Um and and now I appreciate it much more. <laughs> Well, but I was well, like, why? Because I'm, like, I'm all, you know, I, I think I was like, why spray them at all? Like, just leave them alone. <laughs> well, then, I mean, it makes...
1: th- there are reasons to spray besides um, fungus, fungal, right, y- right. You know, um, and so you know, I, I mm. when I spray them, I, I typically spray them just before flowering, or maybe a little bit earlier if it's a year where I'm seeing uh, uranium mite pressure, blister mite pressure. Um, But, uh, and and that's for blister mites, not so much for fungus, but, uh, and you can use, I use typically, you know, something that's organic registered. So cumulus, which is a micronized sulfur, or maybe uh, uh, like stylet oil or whatever Canadian equivalent is of stylet oil, pure spray, I call it up here. Um, What'd you call it? Pure spray green is, is.
0: Pure spray green. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's the same thing as stylet oil. It's just made here. And certified right. here.
0: What is the uh, what is the reason for the timing of uh, just at flowering or before flowering?
1: Well, a couple of reasons is is one is by that time I, you know, if, if you're going to have a uraniumite outbreak, you you'll see it. Um, and the other part is because with the rest of the vineyard, uh, flowering is kind of the high risk period, right? So one um, the uh vector for botrytis the one your highest risk point for botrytis not that it's such a risk in the hybrids but for for in grapes in general is at cap fall, right mm. so when the cap, when you flowering is finished and the little you know caps uh fall off the, the flower bunches there's a little point of injury right at the point where that cap falls off and that mm. is the point of entry for botrytis so i'm doing a spray then anyway and uh, I'll typically use I'll use something like some you know if I'm getting the vinifer and I'm, I'm trying to time it right I'll that's when I might use like serenade or seraphyl, one of the bacterias or I'll use uh, uh, lupin extract What's it called uh, fracture or problad something like that where it gives me a little bit of botrytis protection so because okay. uh, I want it, I want it sort of. I want there to be a low background level of botrytis at the point where that cap is falling off because it's at your highest risk time for botrytis infection. You won't see it then, but that's that's when it right it, uh, right. It, the injury, yeah, that's, yeah. Um, Point, but also true for powdery
0: too. Like, yeah, even though powdery, uh, probably all of these show up at the end of the season. The the you spray from them at the beginning of the season. Like, that's, yeah yeah. Uh, you know, the counterintuitive well, thing.
1: Yeah, well, powdery mildew loves new growth and. Botrytis likes old growth and older parts mm. and wounded parts, so gotta kind of time it with that. But so part of that, right. that this the timing of that spray is to coincide when I'm spraying everything else, and I and I can use a you know um, product that will be fine on the on the uh, hybrids. You could probably like I, I absolutely believe that you could get away with um, not spraying these particular hybrids unless it was like an extremely high disease pressure year. Um, I'm doing it once to protect everything around it. And also that's a chance for me to, um, use foliar, uh, nutrients in my, in my spray as well. So I'm spraying, you know, to apply like in our soils up here, we have like no boron, right? So I'll put like a 10% boron solution in my, uh, in my spray at that point and get the hybrids with it as well. And also I use a a kelp based kelp extract foliar nutrient which I I, you know it's like a a one 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 or a one two one or something like that um right organic kelp extract and I'll apply that at the same time as that spray so I also know that my hybrids are getting a little bit a little like a little boron which is important for fruiting fruitfulness and uh they're getting just a little bit of a, a foliar spray to make sure their nutrients are fine at at the high demand period too so that's part of the timing with um flowering as well because that's the start of the high demand nutrient period
0: well you you and and you have some side-by-side comparison as well with the vinifera i wonder if you could sort of go through like your average production with the hybrids versus the vinifera and and the the water use that you did some testing on
1: yeah, so um, one of the things we're seeing, if, you know, because we get to grow vinifera and hybrids next to each other, get to see the pros and cons of both. And uh, one of the things that uh, we're seeing with the hybrids, especially as we go through, you know, climate change. So um, a couple of years ago, we had uh, a, a, what do you call it? a heat spike here on the island and we saw temperatures of 45 degrees C what's that 120 or something in yeah something like that and like that's unheard of here right and um in cool climate varietals like um Bacchus which is vinifera we actually saw because it got so hot the the bunches just couldn't transpire water fast enough and we actually saw some berry death in the bunches so like a maybe five or ten percent of the bunch, the berries would just like at first I thought it was botrytis because they got that shrivelly kind of look, but then mm-hmm. they just keep going and they turn like absolutely black. They look like big peppercorns within a perfectly healthy bunch. And you'll have oh, like yeah. those all through. And that's just a reaction to that sort of heat and and that sort of stress. Um, and you'll start to see like Pinot Gris will, you know, it'll start to the, the leaves will start to droop. When you get those sort of heat, and then in the in the hybrids, yeah, no problem at all. They just keep trucking along, and so um, and then last year we saw like like the, we've seen these crazy swings. So last year we had such a late spring and an incredibly like just wet. It was so wet I was still mowing grass in the vineyard in August because there was just <laughs> so so much water um, saturated in the soil over over that spring. Um, And then we had like the latest, most beautiful fall ever, which totally saved our whole season last year. And the hybrids, as soon as like, okay, the rain stopped and the sun come out, they're they're almost like, it was like they were racing to Veraison. Like the the, the number of days between flowering and Veraison in those hybrids last year, it was like almost like they they knew they were off to a late start. Um, (laughs) It was a really short period, like... um, was strange whereas the vinifera just kind of soldiered along at their kind of normal pace um, mm. and then this year we had drought we had like four months without a drop of rain from like june till the end of like uh end of may like last week of may till the end of september not a drop of rain um mm. and so then we get into using our irrigation and uh I don't like to use a lot of irrigation. So we have moisture probes throughout the vineyards at uh, convert uh, at uh, 30 centimeters uh, a foot and at uh, two and a half feet. <laughs> and I'm such a metric guy. And uh, we're able to see we're able to see Oops. like the, the moisture in the soil um, and so we can kind of dial in our little micro drip irrigation here. And I just thought I'd see, well, let's, let's see at the point at which, um, the hybrids get stressed. So using the pressure bomb test where you're looking for the little drips coming out of the leaves, leaves and that we were able to see that the hybrids could handle like an extra 10, 12 days between irrigation intervals than the vinifera could when it was showing the same sort of pressure bomb stress indicators. Wow. Um, which is quite a bit. Yeah, and uh, uh, I'm—I ch- was trying to figure out exactly why that is, and I think part of it's the genetics. They're—they can handle wet, they can handle dry. But I also believe that even though all our hybrids are planted on rootstock, I believe that there is some interplay. I'm trying to do more research on this between the, the genetics of you know the the hybrid itself and the American rootstock um, right. that causes. Uh, because hybrids are quite uh, vigorous. They're more vigorous than beniferoanol generally. I think there's some reverse vigor going on where it actually is causing uh, the root base to spread out farther. So you've Mm. got, you've got the roots are drawing off a larger area. So when it's wet, they've got a larger area so they can put up with being a little bit of waterlogged. And when it's dry, they're pulling off a larger area for nutrients and and for water. So they are, Getting stressed slower or more resistant to being stressed. This needs huh. more research. I've been reading a couple of papers on it, and there there's some indicators of this, but uh, it's definitely I think an area where more research should be done. On my case, I just dug a hole in a few spots <laughs> with the backhoe, and uh, um, you can see definitely like the, the the root structures of the hybrids are more extensive than when you're digging holes in say. The Merlot or the the Pinot Pinot Noir
0: areas here. In oh, interesting, huh? So, yeah, that's that. That is really fascinating. But
1: more research needed. But that's what I'm seeing. If you can, you can just see the root balls. Even though, like the the hybrids are on uh, 10114 or 3309, um, but so are the vinifera, right? And so right. you're comparing the same rootstock. So, it's right. like, well, what is the difference? Would have to assume that there is some influence of the scion that's actually growing on the rootstock, right?
0: Right, that is fascinating. So, <laughs> let's talk about the. I mean, can you just mention the productivity, your average tons per acre for for the each, you know, for each part? Of that yeah. Venue? So
1: we're seeing um, off your sort of <laughs> Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, we get about three and a half tons an acre. Mm-hmm. Those are American short tons. So three and a half tons an acre. And on Sauvignon Blanc, we're getting four, four and a bit. Um, and then on like Merlot, we're doing about three and a half to four. Um, Gewurztraminer is around four. We got, we got a few small blocks of remnants. Uh, Gewurzt is one of those. And then in the, the hybrids we're getting about six, which is, wow. uh, commercially interesting um and (laughs)
0: it's a good way to put it
1: we've done uh you know i've done uh experiments with with you know dropping fruit and that sort of thing to see if it really makes any difference in the ripeness or or whatever in marechal foch or cabernet foch and and it it doesn't seem to make any difference whatsoever uh as far as you know the the level of acidity the uh uh tannin development the phenolics in the wine the you know anthocyanin maturity like you know how brown the seeds are you know right. the level of bricks you hit comparing the rows side by side um uh-huh. it it does it's what seems to be the key factor is we do uh, leaf thinning to get the, the light on the on the on the bunches and that seems to have more of an influence on you know the actual uh, Ripeness oh, and chemical know. properties of of the resulting fruit than than anything, and I think right. part of that is um, with the two hybrids, the two main hybrids, the the blackners anyway, Cabernet Foch and Cab leave because they have Cabernet Sauvignon parentage, the pyrazine monster hangs around, <laughs> and if I was if I was developing my own hybrids, I probably would have picked a non high you know a non pyrazine producing. Uh, uh, (laughs) red vinifera parent like i don't know malbec or tempranillo or something um so we get we we do leaf thinning and getting getting the the sun in the fruit zone uh it it, we do see higher bricks but but more importantly those pyrazines do burn off
0: got it well this is very interesting so you're you're spraying the hybrids once per year as opposed to how many times do you on average you spraying vinifera
1: uh, yeah, the hybrids are, are, are once a year, and that's that's a pragmatic choice <laughs> rather than right. one that you absolutely have to do. Um, right. And the vinifera, I'm spraying about five or six times a year. Five or you six know, obviously, obviously it's, uh, it's risk-based, so in a really wet year, uh, the wettest year we had here, I think I sprayed eight times. But usually it's five or six. And uh, my spray program looks like, you know, the first two sprays are usually Cumulus, which is a sulfur product, um, Omri-rated sulfur product. And then um, I'll use Serenade or Seraphil or something like that. This last year I used um, the Pure Spray Green uh, for the first time, which is like stylet oil, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And um, what was the last one? Uh, Oh, uh, Fracture, which is now called Problad, which is a Sweet lupins extract, right? And so, while I'm not certified organic, I definitely try and farm that way. Um, if I was faced, I mean, it is the island still, and we can get crazy high disease pressure years that are just wet, wet, wet. And so, if I had to, I would consider um, using a, a a systemic. If I had to, what I did was I was transitioning because when I took over this place seven years ago. It was all synthetics all the time, right? as far as the the fungicide program went, and it was on a calendar, and he was spraying about nine or ten times a year, and it seemed a bit over the top to me. So the first thing I did was cut down the amount I was spraying, and tried to link it to risk. So, you know, did it rain? Is there high humidity? Am I seeing any you know signs and symptoms in more vulnerable you know like strawberries for example, or, or Um, and then I said okay well now can I introduce more of the organic sprays and so I the the process was full synthetic cut them back and then I was I went to say I was spraying six times a year I would do five of those would be uh, organic sprays and there'd be one synthetic one systemic that I would spray at that high risk period right before flowering
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, and then now I've gone with full organic sprays and um, just keep rotating them it's right all of those products that i that I talked about. Um,
0: so I mean, just to summarize what you've said for <laughs> for anybody who's keeping score at home, um you're you're using far less product um, and time in the hybrids. you're they're able to deal with far less water, it sounds like without yeah. getting stressed, and you're getting a higher productivity, yeah, with with less input. In, in all True.
1: I mean, men. they are they are pretty vigorous, um, and the Cabernet Foch, um, it grows like wet spit spaghetti cross with a porcupine. It, it 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 it's not even remotely upright. So like the amount of hand labor to tuck it is, yeah, it's 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 an issue, and I just do okay. think it, it, I do think it it actually <laughs> eats up some of those savings that you get in that you only have to spray it once. Okay, because um, there
0: is more hand tending to them. Okay, yes, that's good yeah. to know.
1: So um, there are other. We have we have like a, a one row of white blatners and it's got two different grapes in it um, that was planted as a, you know just an trial row and they're numbered blatners and then one of them grows so upright that you just give it a you know a stern look and it grows up through the catch wires and there's almost right. no tech tucking and then but this one is the opposite and I'm growing. You know, your traditional um, double guillot cane prune vertical shoot positioning uh, in my whole vineyard. There are other people who grow the the Cabernet Foch kind of like on a high cordon and then let it hang down. Right. And that is probably easier and cheaper. Um, But uh, there are a couple of people around here growing that way with that variety. I just find that uh, if you don't, if you do that, you get the high pyrazines. (laughs) So maybe there's another hybrid. Like I think Marichelle Foch, they grow Marichelle Foch, um, that high cordon hanging type of uh, spur prune, you know, hanging cordon type Uh, quite a bit in in the the East Coast of the U.S. and on the East Coast of Canada. And I think it's a good, good way to grow Marichelle Foch. Um, Right you know, and and maybe other hybrids. But these particular ones, I find the pyrazines are hot so high that the, 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 the cane prune BSP just allows you to get in there, leaf thin and really get the light on those berries and push the quality. Huh. So you got yeah. to kind of match the space to the varietal, to the growing system, regardless of whether it's vinifera or hybrid. But generally, I think, you know, looking at what they're doing in Germany and, and uh, the East Coast of the US, there are opportunities to, Play around with some of those other um, growing systems, and because hybrids are generally more productive, you know, there are even guys doing the the, the double canopy thing, and like, you know, getting like eight tons an acre. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Well, have but, you, do you have a favorite of the ones that you're working with uh, in terms of flavor or growth style or all of the above, or um, do you, or do you not look at it that way.
1: Uh, well, you know, the winery owner in me likes the Maréchal Foch because it's like 6 tons an acre and it flies out of here. It's like in, it's like a local cult wine. It's been and has been for like 20 25 years and and uh, uh, so yeah, I love that one. Uh, the Maréchal Foch and the Cabernet Foch. So I make a wine called the Matrix which I blend like 70% Cabernet Foch 20% Merlot because we grow a little bit of Merlot here and uh, 10% of the Cabernet leave. Cabernet leave is uh flavor wise, quality wise. It, it's so much like Cabernet Franc. It's, it's, it's kind of scary in it's sort of flavor profile. So that's how we use it in our blend is like you'd use Cabernet Franc. Um, and uh, I, you know, I'm kind of a fan of the matrix. When we took it over here seven years ago, he he was making matrix and he was it was just a blend of the cabernet foch and the cabernet leaf and he was aging it in neutral oak and and uh, it was the pyrazines were kind of a bit on the nose and then so then I've come in here and kind of getting a little more light on it, getting the pyrazines down, blending in twenty percent merlot and I'm using about thirty percent French oak. Um, it's a, definitely a more commercially appealing wine and it's people taste it and they go. I, I, people ask me about it. I always say, well, I wouldn't call it a Bordeaux blend, but you can tell the winemakers been to Bordeaux. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, it's about as close as we're going to get to that, uh, here, you know, on, on the fringes of uh, the, the grape growing world. Um, right. and so I, and I'm kind of proud of that one in that, like, there was no market for it when we took over, I had three vintages and tanks in the back of the winery. I'm like, what do I do with this stuff? And, <laughs> uh, um, so then I took those wines and I blended in a little Merlot and and I uh, gave them some oak and um, like I bought some new oak barrels and put some oak in the program and tweaked them a little bit and uh, put the, a nice nicer label on the bottle. And the and I had like 14, 15, and 16 vintages in tank like when I got here. And uh, changing the blend a little bit, a little oak and that sort of thing, they started selling. And now I think we've just released the 2021. Um, so the 17 to 21 are ones that that I've made and using a little bit different winemaking technique. Um, they've really become popular. Our latest one, um, we just released it in May, and I've I, I released a, you know a couple hundred cases, 300 cases, and I think I've got 20 left. And I'm oh, wow. And but previously. That was the wine that just used to tick over and we'd like bottle it, release it. A year later, it'd be sold out. And the next one, you know what I mean, would come out and, oh, yeah, it would tick away in the tasting room. And now uh, the liquor, you know, this this hybrid wine, the liquor stores are buying it up. It's starting to show up in restaurants. And for the first time, I'm like, geez, wish I kind of had another acre or two more of that so it is kind of exciting that people are are enjoying it they're starting to buy it we won a couple of medals for it at the national level and that sort of showing a bit of a light on it and people like the story of you know it's much easier to grow organically and uh, you know it's it's a local big red whereas most of the reds around here is it's like pinot noir heaven right so but not everybody is a pinot noir fan so this is something that offers Something local that you can have with a lamb chop, <laughs> right? You know, so, um,
0: so yeah, uh, it's kind of it's kind of
1: exciting. I'm really proud of that. That you know, we've actually created a market and a demand for this uh, weird hybrid wine.
0: <laughs> that is great. I mean, that's part of the. Yeah, I can see where it, I'd be proud of that too. So, what? But that that was a struggle. I mean, is it a struggle for? I, I mean, wh- were there other things that you've done to? That you had to do because of the difficulty in marketing you know, varieties that people weren't familiar with or that weren't popular in your area?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, part of it is I mean, this place has been around for 30 years. Hmm. So, you know, Bacchus, very few people know what Bacchus is. And uh, we have a wine called Clarinet, which is 100% Marichal Foch. And okay. my predecessor named it Clarinet um, because he said it was too good to be called Foch. Um, <laughs> And because Marichelle Foch was really widely planted in the early days of the BC wine industry, like in the 60s and 70s
0: oh, okay.
1: um, in the Okanagan. And Marichelle Foch is probably the least forgiving grape of a heavy-handed winemaker. So, <laughs> And what I mean by that is it's like if you if you leave it on the seeds too long, it goes funky and almost metallic and weird. Right. Um, so in the winemaking side, with that one, you want to ferment it. I fermented an insulated bin. So you want to get it warm quickly, get it, get it hot quickly, um, get ferment, you know, right at the top of where your yeast tolerance, uh, fermentation range temperature wise. And then I press it after only like five or six days um, when it's still like 35, 40 percent um, left to go. Like it's still got that sugar left in it, 35, 40 percent sugars left in it. I press it off the skins at that point and put it in a tank and I let it ferment to dry in a tank, but I get it away from the skins. And more importantly, I get it away from the seeds because if you don't get it off the seeds, as the alcohol level in the wine rises, you get the solvent effect of the alcohol starts to really pull on this extract up from the seeds and you get that weird, funky, metallic uh, I if you've ever tasted it, over-extracted Marshall Foch will know exactly what I'm talking about, and so so that grape was quite widely planted in in, in here in Canada in the 70s and 8 you know 60s 70s early 80s, and uh, it developed a bit of a reputation as well. It'll get you drunk, but <laughs> you're not bringing it to dinner, right? And so really having to learn about like, okay, you can't make it like Cabernet Sauvignon. You're not going to do these three week extended macerations and, and that sort of thing. So, um, it has taken some time to learn how to, how to make the wine like that. So my predecessor, he figured out some of that, some of that stuff. And I've kind of, you know, he figured out that like press it early. Um, but I sort of have introduced the like, well, getting it hot faster. And, right. uh, um, using insulated fermenters and then having a little oak in the fermenter um, to tame some of those uh, some of the because you got to remember Miraval Foch is the first generation hybrid so it it's got a little bit of wild uh, herbal uh, notes uh, especially when it's young our vines here are thirty years old so we have much less of that um, but you know mm. a little bit of oak in the fermenter helps with that and then picking a yeast that's uh, gonna help lift your fruit a little bit um,
0: does that I'm happen not, at any does that happen What's, at any ripeness level? Like, is that does that greenness go away if with hang time on the vine?
1: Yeah, it does. It does. But it's it's you know some of that some of that greenness is is coming from the seeds. So even gotcha. if it's twenty six bricks and you know uh, I don't know a ta of five and a ph of three point five, you know, and its seeds are really brown and all that sort of thing, you're still going to pick up just a wee little bit of that funk. Um, hmm. The older the vine, the less of that you're going to get. But uh, um, yeah, you're going to see that. So a little bit of oak in the fermenter, and, and then you know a yeast that's uh, going to help promote. I'm, I like to inoculate. I know it's, there's this whole thing with uh, in, feral ferments. I think is more accurate than indigenous. But uh, um, you know I like to inoculate, so I know what I'm dealing with. Also, like with the Cabernet Foch and Cabernet Lead, not so much with the Meritage Foch, um, but the Cab Foch and Cab Lead you can get fairly high acid levels. Right. Right. And the other thing about hybrids is when you're getting those higher acid levels, like, oh, let's say nine, 10 grams per liter and a, you know, 3.3, 3.2 pH kind of thing in a a cold year. Um, In hybrids, from what I've seen in the research I've done, a greater proportion of that, especially in red habit, hybrids tends to be malic acid than you see in vinifera. So that, you know, let's say it's 10 grams, just for the sake of conversation, ten grams. I don't usually see it that high. But let's say it's ten grams per liter of acid. You know, six and a half of those would be malic, right? Right. So one of the things I like to do is select a, a yeast that, um, in those cool years, I like to select a yeast that that will metabolize some of those malic, some of that malic mm-hmm. acid during primary fermentation, which is very commonly done with uh, hybrid winemaking, especially in the in the East where they're working with those. Um, the other school of hybrids. So ours are, you know, predominantly the fungal resistant type. And then, you know, sort of in the Midwest and the East Coast of the U.S., they're they're dealing with the cold tolerant hybrids, which tend to have like Frontenac and things like that. I remember when I lived in Montreal, making Frontenac and you know, getting 15 grams per liter of acid and 2.8 pH. Yeah, you know, that's, <laughs> you're using those malic metabolizing yeasts, and then you're cold stabilizing a red wine before you put it through MLF to get the pH high enough that the MLF will start. Right. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, that's so. what I was going to ask. I mean, does MLF not take care of some of that malic for you regardless of the yeast that you you would use? Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean but if you're dealing it? with like a, a pH under 3.1, so sometimes... Right, right, cool yeah, area. then it won't even... Art, yeah yeah so that's when that's when you want to use those is, or if even even at 3.2 you know uh,
0: which it's
1: iffy right yeah well 3.2 even if you're using you know a strain like Lalvin 31 or something that's supposed to be good down to 3.1 what they don't tell you is that the closer you get to that 3.1 the slower it is
0: <laughs> right. right right so
1: um, it's nice to uh, if you can drop a little bit of that malloc before you get there yeah Otherwise you're looking at like, you know, you know, 14 week MLF or something like
0: that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one of the big things that my eyes have been open to are just the, the way that hybrids actually allow you, give you time in the winemaking because of things like that, Um, because Mm -hmm. you have these lower pHs, higher acids. So you just have this natural microbial protection, um, you know, that even in a place like a warm climate, like here, where it's, you know, so much of it is just this you know it's like being a chef with like all the burners on you know you've just got to time everything perfectly or else something's going to get scorched yeah, I, rem- I remember when i was a, um you know with-
1: when, when i was a home winemaker we uh i was belonged to a, a really nerdy garage home winemaking club in montreal and uh because i was one of the english speakers i would call california and we'd be we'd be buying grapes out of california like, i remember like having to like look up what do I do with a 4.0 pH <laughs> because, because <laughs> exactly. I had never I, you know I'd worked with grapes from in Europe and and from like Niagara which is Ontario's wine region but I'd never never encountered you know I, I remember I've got some uh, Caldwell Vineyard Cabernet Sauvignon one time it was like 28 bricks and 4.0 pH and I asked everybody <laughs> in the wine club what do I do with this and they're like I don't know <laughs>
0: So, uh, yeah, I had to and reach out
1: to some uh, California winemakers, and they're like, "Oh, yeah."
0: I mean, when I realized, add that some is, tartaric
1: like, acid. So I went to the winemaking shop and said, "Do you have any tartaric acid?" and They're like, "No, we never sell that."
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't find that in Vermont, for example. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to order
1: some from More Wine. Yeah, this is like twenty years ago.
0: Yeah. No, but yeah, I mean that. That I mean that that was the thing when I you know, in trying to make a wine without additions, you know, I was trying to get grapes from this one vineyard that was in the Sierra foothills. And it was like, we were still, I mean, weeks away from harvest. It was like, you know, these were more Vedra that was like 17 bricks or something like that. And it was already like 3.5 pH. And I was like, and and you could see the pH rising every week, you know, we were getting like weekly (laughs) reports on pH and bricks. And I was just like, this is like I will not be able to make a wine look without doing something to it. Like, I mean, this is crazy. You know,
1: I mean, here, here we, we, you know, with the hybrids or whatever, you know, you know, those exceptionally cool years aside, we tend to end up kind of right in the in the zone of like, you know, sort of textbook levels. So you know, we'll see. You know, my white whites, you know, whether it's Pinot Gris or Sauv Blanc or Bacchus, you know, we're you know, we'll see. You know, acids six and a half to seven and a half and three point2 3 point3 phs on the whites you know which is kind of textbook where you want to be with aromatic whites and yeah you know the cab fosh and cab lead most years um like a cab fosh we'll see 22 to 24 bricks and we'll see you know six and a half ta and you know 3.4 ph before we could go through MLF you know um right. Just not a bad spot to be. The Cabernet no. Libre, uh, uh is a funny hybrid in that it, it's it's not capable of getting over twenty bricks. So huh. what ha- what happens is um, it hits it hit, it'll hit twenty bricks about two weeks before the Pinot Noir is sort of ready to pick. Um, but I don't pick it. <laughs> so if, right. you, you know I could leave I could let it hang for you know a month after that, and it's not going to come up over 20 bricks. It's a weird thing about this hybrid, but what does happen is the acids come down into the range where you want them to be and uh, the pyrazines go away. So like mm-hmm. one, once it hits 20 bricks, I, I just start watching it. And um, the other thing about these hybrids, you know, when I'm watching them and you kind of, the numbers move down kind of slowly, but, you know, as the acids come down and ripeness comes up, it's kind of a slow, steady, you know, progress. So you, it's not like, you know, when I was in Australia and it's like, okay, everything's looking like where it needs to be. And then, you know, on Monday and then Wednesday you get a heat spike and suddenly you've lost your acid and your bricks shoot up through the roof. It, it doesn't tend to happen. There's kind of a, a, a steady progression. But the other thing about these hybrids like growing here on the Island, I mean, part of having them planted in 40% of the vineyard is, is a risk management strategy. And I talked about that rain, like you know, we we joke around here, the rain fairy is coming. Um, but if you don't get in before that rain uh, with your with your vinifera, the berries will swell up and they will split, and you will lose your crop, right? So right. it's always that playing chicken. So um, so last year, what we did was, uh, you know, we were because it was such a late pick, so we're we picked like third, fourth week of October, which is about almost three weeks later than we'd ever picked before. Um, you're that late in the season, even though it's still still sunny, you could get a rainstorm come over the mountains at any time. So last year we made the call, pick the vinifera. So it was the first time I didn't pick the Merlot last. And we picked all the vinifera first. So we started with the white vinifera and then the Pinot uh, Noir, then the Merlot. Uh, then it started raining And all when it started raining, all we had left out there was the Marichelle Foch, the Cab Foch, and the Cab Lieb, uh, which are really thick-skinned, and they're more resistant to those late harvest rains. And then we had rain for about three, four days, which would have ruined Pinot Noir. And then when it dried up, we went and picked. And it was the first year ever that I picked the Cabernet Lieb last. It's usually my first first red I pick. Um, And I, I let it hang out there simply because I knew it would be the most resistant to any sort of catastrophic rain event so they do they do allow you a little bit of um uh risk management strategy when you're having to deal with things like rain events
0: yeah sounds like a significant amount of risk management strategy um yeah and because then the, the you- numbers
1: don't move really fast you know okay it, it stayed out there for an extra week well um <laughs> it was still fine you know as far as right. phenolic <laughs> ripeness right. and sugar ripeness and the acid levels was it didn't hurt it.
0: Yeah, now would you ever consider going all hybrids, and why or why not?
1: Um, would I go all hybrids? Um, th- th- there, there, there are t- there is a winery south of here, like in the other end of the valley, that uh, when when they were originally planted was pretty much all hybrids, and there are certainly a couple of vineyards that are hybrid only that sell into wineries, but looking at uh, my own sales. And what we've seen, um, at one of the larger wineries here that went heavy, heavy hybrids early, um, there is that market resistance. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, you're never going to be able to sell Marichelle Foch for the same price as Pinot Noir. Like people will oh. pay, you know, people will pay, you know, 40, 50, hundred percent more for Marichelle or for Pinot Noir than Marichelle Foch. Um, okay. So, when I go hundred percent higher i th- I think there are market forces that would need to be considered um and
0: do you see those in your short time here doing this do you see any movement in those market forces, or are they pretty consistent since you started?
1: um you know what i'm saying if i if I use our example of of the hybrid blend the matrix, which is the cat Bosch, cat Weave in it yeah it, it 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 just wasn't selling when we took over, and so I think fundamentally. If the wine is good, you know, and and it's funny because like just today Julie was in the tasting room and she goes, you know, I'm going to take Maraschino off off the gun, off, you know, off the coravin, of um, and I just looked at her and she goes, yeah, it's it's we we've, we've barely got any of the matrix left, and in the uh, the six and a half years we've been doing this, we've literally had the matrix on the flight in the tasting room the entire time <laughs> to build a market for it. You know what I mean? Like to, yeah. like people come in the tasting, well, everybody's tasting this. Right. right. And that's how we built the market. And now it's people are going into liquor stores. People who were here in the tasting room are going to liquor stores and they're asking for it. Um, the restaurants are starting to carry it. So um, all that that's taken us that to, it's the quality that drives it. So if you're, if it, whatever it's made out of, if it tastes right. good, People will buy it. You just need to have right. the patience to build a market for it. Like, I, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I, th- I think most people, if it's not one of the sort of big six, you know, Pinot, Cab, Merlot, you know, Syrah, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, um, you got to kind of go through that process anyway. Like, you know, i got a buddy who grows Albarino, you know, in, out in the Okanagan, nice. and, and uh, people are like, Albert who? Yeah. So... <laughs> you know, maybe so, it's a similar thing for when you're growing these kind of off the beaten path for idols.
0: Sure. Um, yeah.
1: Like certainly Bacchus, like people, the locals here know Bacchus, right. And it's really got a following and it sells really well for us. Huh. Um And, but yeah, you're uh, the first
0: person I've ever heard mention it. So that's yeah. fascinating.
1: Yeah. It's actually the, the sort of cornerstone of the, the English wine industry. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. But, crazy. uh,
0: Clearly, I know nothing about the English wine industry. Yeah,
1: kidding. well, I, I lived in England for a few times over the years. But the um, down in Victoria, we used to have the Bacchus in kegs. Uh, we used to keg it. And one of the places you used to sell was a, a place called the, the Bouchard Gardens, which is like, well, if you're a local, you'd never go there. It's like the the most touristed place on Vancouver Island. <laughs> it's like, you know, if Disney, if Disney did roses... <laughs> kind of thing and it's like tour bus after tour bus and cruise ship people and that sort of thing and so we used to have this wine there and, and they had it on tap there for like 10 years wow and um and then they just called us and you know like they, they stopped carrying it uh and uh it was pretty because like uh, i don't know the the current wave of tourists is less adventurous on a grape they've never heard before so huh. they said can we have the pinot gris because people know what that is huh. um, and uh, so it's one of the reasons we stopped our keg program was was that sort of resistance but certainly like in the bottle on the shelf on a restaurant list you know even in vancouver which is tends to be a little more conventional um it still sells well so maybe because it's been around for 30 years people kind of know what it is maybe it's because it's named after the god of wine i I don't know, but I I do think that with hybrids you're going to encounter some some resistance from people who are less adventurous. But then again, maybe that's true of all off the beaten path varietals.
0: Yeah, I, w- I wonder that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean
1: it's hard to get Americans to drink Syrah, you know.
0: So. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. It wasn't too long ago <laughs> that we were making jokes about Syrah, and i probably yeah. still it's still valid to do those jokes, you know. Um, yeah. Though there's more. I mean. Yeah. That's funny. Um, well I I mean so we should mention Alderley Vineyards is the name of your winery. Alderley Vineyards, is that right?
1: Yes, that's correct. So Alderley was original and the original name of the town of Duncan like 100 years ago or maybe over the low. Okay. Old, before the First World War. Um, and then the 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 ra- the railway station uh, that came into town also became the post office right around the First World War. And the postmaster Railway station manager and first mayor was all the same guy, and his name was John Duncan. So at some point <laughs> they just changed the name to to Duncan, <laughs> and they dropped the name Alderly. And anyway, so it is a historic uh, name in the area. So
0: that's great. And th- what's your website?
1: Alderley.ca. A l d e r l e a. ca or .dot com. They both work.
0: Great place to check out if you're, you know anywhere near vancouver island vancouver victoria seattle <laughs> the whole yeah. western washington area yeah the Cowichan um,
1: valley is is definitely like we we got our sort of sub gi uh sub geographical indicator status about 18 months ago maybe two years ago now so we're now officially a, a, a you know a recognized wine growing region like an ava and um you know, there are a lot of direct flights from Seattle to Victoria, which is only 40 minutes south of here, and uh, definitely seeing a lot more uh, visitors from across the Pacific Northwest and California.
0: Vancouver Island is a great place for mushroom hunting, I uh, hear. Oh, well. Couch
1: and Valley is the mushroom capital of the world. A good friend of ours, Bill Jones, is a chef, and he teaches uh, mushroom foraging courses here. And, and uh, yeah, you get chanterelles and morels and pines and shaggy manes, and uh, you, you name it, it grows
0: here. Right. <laughs> Um and I just I mean I I love the model that you presented for anybody who is growing vinifera but is thinking or you know it might be frustrated like I have become with its performance in the vineyard and its inconsistency and its lack of resilience. And or or maybe it's somebody who's planning but they you know, they're they're not on board. But you know, I mean just the idea of like a forty percent hybrid vineyard. Um, gives you both the ability to make these comparisons, which I think are really valuable for yourself, if nobody else, to see, you know, what's possible um, side by side with the you know popular vinifera versus obscure other grapes, and then also just to you know have that risk management strategy built into your viticulture as well, and and reduce overall costs essentially um, for the you know for your total production. Yeah, it's um, about
1: like like from a from the the difference in herbicide costs is like you're talking about an eighty five percent reduction, you know, in, yeah. in the cost of, of the, the vinifera, and that's with a one spray program. If, if you were in a no spray possibility, well, <laughs> you know, yeah. there you go. And I, you asked me about what I consider um, a hundred percent hybrid vineyard, and, and I, there is there is the the looming specter of climate change, and and I, yeah if anything was going to make me go down that path would definitely be climate change. Cause we are definitely seeing them more resistant, uh, resilient is probably the better word to not only wet cold years, but also like hot dry years and the swings and arrows in between. So um, that is something, you know, would definitely have me thinking about heading down that path for sure.
0: Yeah. And it's uh, like you said, I mean, I I didn't even mention that, but yeah, if you had separate blocks where they, you weren't necessarily like side by side rows, but you had some separation and you didn't care about that sort of potential creating a, a vector in one crop that might spread to the other, you, you could easily probably go no spray in your Climate and any West Coast climate here in North America. Any, yeah, I think you know, if you know, I training. was a little,
1: if I was a little braver and maybe was doing, you know, uh, fungal tape lift sampling mm-hmm. and to establish that there wasn't a vector risk, then yeah. I could consider no spray. I just, uh, well, we're still on our journey, and maybe that that will be something we do in the future is actually to do field fungal sampling in the in the in the uh, hybrid blocks to see if they are a potential vector. I mean, I'm just assuming there's some risk there that may not actually be there, but um, that's, yeah, that's actually, definitely yeah. worth, worth doing a study. Uh, yeah. there's Maybe some great I'll information. get somebody out from the local university to write a paper. On. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, there, there, there you go. Well, there's some great information out there on, on testing, you know, these little spore traps in the vineyard to, to monitor those things. I think it's very low cost and very sort of, you know, lay scientific, thing you can do any anybody growing grapes can do pretty easily so something to consider if anybody else is thinking about that as well um just to yeah as a as a way to to know before you you know to to eliminate those sort of scary potentials yeah and even Um, in
1: your even in your vinifera crops i think you know if you were able to do fungal spore sampling and something resembling real time you would able it would great enable you to really understand the risk of, fungal, of a fungal outbreak in your vineyard. So you could target your sprays to the risk and not just on a calendar. And that would probably right. result in less sprays applied it more, more strategically than your typical, well, it's been seven days spray again, kind of approach that so much of our industry has.
0: Right. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing all this. I think it's... Uh, I mean, I don't think people realize, well, maybe they do, how revolutionary uh, some of this information actually is to our wine industry. But I think it is. So thanks for sharing it. No worries.
1: I mean, I read somewhere that uh, in, in France, uh, uh, viticulture is like uh, 5% of the uh, total agricultural area of France and wow. uses something like 40% of the agrochemicals. So yeah. if we can move away from that model, um, right? You know, using hybrids, I, I definitely think it's 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 an area that is you know really should be explored.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially in places like that where you know it, they're not even a Mediterranean climate; they're continental, so they have much higher pressures. I would say even than than we do here on the west coast of North America in in our dry areas and our little rain shadows and such. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, there's new studies. Of New study just came out that there's and you know they've definitely found an increased risk in acute of of acute leukemia in children uh, in high viticultural density areas. So you know, and they're connecting that directly to the use of pesticides and sprays in those Mm -hmm. vineyards. So that's in France. Those were studies from France. So yeah, yeah, I
1: mean, I definitely think like from a community uh, aspect, um, spraying less. And and being able to spray organically, I think, will uh, make you more friendly to the neighbors. I am thinking of another vineyard to the south here. And even though he's only spraying organics, you know, he's out there on his sprayer and he looks over and there's literally a little old lady in the property next door giving him the finger every time he sprays. And and then I I said, you need to put signs on your fence saying, you know, organic vineyard, you know, and and on your (laughs) sprayer, you know.
0: Right. Right, right, yeah. You know,
1: people see you spraying something. It, it it might be stylet oil, and they think it's you know I don't know Zyklon B or something. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, no, it's definitely true, an right? advantage in there. You know, in, if you're out there and spraying once a year versus, geez, he's out there like in a lot of organic vineyards spraying seven every seven days.
0: Right, uh, right. You know, I think about that here in Los Angeles because I strap on my backpack sprayer and I'm out there, you know, right right next to the sidewalk with people walking by, and I'm like you know, I often wonder that as well. But then I, you know, I'm completely uncovered. I'm in shorts and a t-shirt, you know, no PPE at all. So I'm hoping they they are making the assumption that I would be protecting myself if I thought it was dangerous. And, uh, and is there anything else that we should talk about? Like uh, any, anything closing things from you, you know, things you want people to get in touch with you about or and with, you know, anything like that?
1: I am you know, I'm always uh, interested to hear from people who are growing hybrids and I'm quite active on a couple of the cold climate uh, winemaking and grape growing forums on Facebook, etc. So and uh, I've written a couple of articles on, on hybrid winemaking. Um, so I'm, if anybody comes across any of those articles or finds me in any of those Facebook groups or just wants to send me an email here because they want to talk about. You know, hybrid winemaking, which I think is a bit understudied and under, I mean, you can read 100 books on making Pinot Noir or Cabernet Sauvignon. There's not much on hybrids, especially the reds. So uh, anybody wants to reach out with me and and engage with me on some of those topics, I'm totally uh, there or or to ask my opinion on hybrids in general, as far as growing them goes. That would be cool.
0: Great. I mean, is there a best way to get in touch with you?
1: Um.
0: Through the website?
1: <laughs> through the website, yeah. Alderlyvineyards.ca
0: is a, not a bad calendar. And what's your you have a what's your Instagram?
1: Um well we have two. One of uh, Alderly Alderley Vineyards and then okay. uh, mine is Cow Valley Vino.
0: Cow Valley Vino, okay, <laughs> gotcha.
1: Yeah. That, and the one the Cow Valley Vino one is more uh like the the, the Alderly Vineyards one is more uh your typical wine winery uh instagram you know with kind of what we're doing what wine's releasing and stuff whereas mine is you'll see me doing you know Lee's stirring a little one minute talk about Lee's stirring you know right. <laughs> pruning or stuff like that's a little more uh here's my little wine making minute or grape growing minute so fine gotcha. but
0: uh, all right well yeah great well thanks again great talking about this stuff appreciate it great Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And as always, a huge thank you to those of you who support via Patreon subscription. It is invaluable and absolutely necessary to making this possible. Thank you so much. If anybody is interested in sponsoring this podcast, please contact me through connect at organicwinepodcast.com. That's connect at organicwinepodcast.com. The best email to get in touch.